0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Your Brain on Facts book, where you can read the harrowing true-life story of a labor leader and human rights advocate who was assassinated at the age of 12. And by Moxie Labouche voiceovers. Remember, my listeners get 50% off standard voiceover rates. Email me, moxie at yourbrainonfacts.com. A video is making the rounds on the internet this week, caught on one of those smart doorbell cameras. It's 2 a.m., and a man is anxiously knocking on his neighbor's door, trying to wake him. Does the man need help? Is there an emergency? Is the neighbor's house on fire? Was there a prowler in the area, or some other kind of threat? No, the man, Robert Wilson, is trying to wake his across-the-street neighbor to tell him that they just won the Nobel Prize. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. A good reputation is more valuable than money. Poblilius Sirius, a Syrian living in Rome at the time of the big B.C. A.D. changeover. We have no way of knowing if Alfred Nobel ever read Publilius, but he definitely had reputation on his mind. The Swedish chemist, engineer, and industrialist found a novel way to combine good old gunpowder with the exciting new discovery of nitroglycerin to form a truly earth-shaking invention dynamite it was a game changer for industries like mining and it killed people like it was nobody's business both intentionally and through many, many factory explosions Nobel got richer with each improvement on the dynamite then his brother Ludwig died a French newspaper ran an obit for Alfred having gotten their lines crossed somewhere along the way Le Merchant de la is est mort, the paper proclaimed. The Merchant of Death is Dead. Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. That's got a sting. Nobel had no children and a sudden intense concern about his legacy. So he decided to put some of the money he'd made into the service of repairing his name with a real long-term strategy. In his 1895 will, drafted the year before he died, Nobel instructed that most of his fortune, the equivalent of $250 million today, be set aside to create and award five annual prizes, quote, to those who, during the preceding year, shall have conferred the greatest benefit on mankind. Provided you benefit mankind by way of physics, chemistry, physiology or medicine, literature, and problematically vague, more on that later, peace. Wait a sec, say those of you with better recall than me. Where's the Nobel Prize for Economics? There wasn't one. There still isn't. Apart from the one that there kind of is. The Bank of Sweden Prize in Economic Sciences in Memory of Alfred Nobel was created by Sweden's Central Bank in 1968. What about mathematics? The popular apocrypha is that Nobel lost the woman he loved to a mathematician and so did not consider mathematics to be important enough. There's no proof for that story, sadly, and while no one knows for sure the reason, it could be as simple as Nobel really wasn't a math guy. Aphelia there. Winners are announced in October and November, the culmination of a year's preparation. More than 6,000 people, like Nobel laureates, aka past winners, scholars in various fields, and officials from various universities, are invited to nominate candidates, about 1,000 of them for each prize, which usually results in between 100 and 250 nominees. It's not just names in a hat. You have to write a detailed proposal in favor of your nominee, and no, no matter how much you want to... No matter how cleverly you think you can get away with it, you cannot nominate yourself. Also, you must be alive. Nobel Prizes aren't awarded posthumously, at least not anymore. A few were in the early days, but it was decided in the 1970s that that wasn't their bag anymore. But exceptions make the rule, and there is one notable exception... In 2011, Canadian immunologist Ralph Steinman received the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine, but he passed away between being nominated and the prize being announced. According to Steinman's daughter, her father had actually joked about getting the Nobel Prize shortly before he died. They don't give it to you if you've passed away, he said according to her. I got to hold out for that. He didn't quite make it, but they gave him the prize anyway. Steinman must have had a real sixth sense when it comes to convoluted award schemes, because non-winning nominees are kept secret for 50 years, in part to prevent a sort of Susan Lucci situation. For those of you who don't recognize the name, Susan Lucci is an American soap opera actress who was nominated for a Daytime Emmy Award 19 years in a row before she won. I always suspected that she got the nom as a running gag after a while. The Nobel Committee keeps the also-rans under their collective hat so people don't include previous nominations as an argument for the prize. If nothing else, this secrecy means you could claim that you were nominated for a Nobel Prize and no one can prove otherwise. Work it into your next pickup line. You know, when we can go out in public and interact with strangers. The first prizes were awarded on December 10, 1901, the fifth anniversary of Nobel's death. It wasn't that it took the committee five years to figure out what they were doing or find suitable candidates. Alfred Nobel's extended family contested his will. He was worth a quarter billion dollars, after all. Plus, the awards committee that Nobel had selected refused to participate. Surely things smoothed out once they got up and running. Au contraire. It wouldn't make much of an episode if there weren't scandals, follies, WTFs, and a palate cleanser of amazing science to top it all off. Since 1901, there have been 49 years where Nobel Prizes were not awarded. Some of them were during the World Wars, stands to reason, but most of the skipped years were just because nobody was good enough to get one. The statutes of the Nobel Foundation say... If none of the works under consideration is found to be of the importance indicated in the first paragraph, the prize money shall be reserved until the following year. If, even then, the prize cannot be awarded, the amount shall be added to the Foundation's restricted funds. Too bad the individual prizes don't keep growing like the lottery when no one wins for a few months. Wait, there's money? Hell yeah, there's money. In addition to the amazing prestige of the medal itself winners receive a monetary prize of 10 million Swedish krona, or about $1.1 million, or 874,000 Great British pounds. You know who's worth a million bucks, at least to me? The members at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts who help me keep the show going by defraying the very real costs involved in production. Earlier this month, supporters received a bonus episode in which I read The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe, almost as well as Sean from Stories of Your and Yours, if I do say so myself. And the next bonus mini-episode is going to be a true-life story, far more sinister and frightening than anything Poe ever came up with. But to find out what that will be, you'll have to join us over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Or if you just want to hang out with like-minded people and share interesting tidbits you find throughout your day, head over to facebook.com groups, plural, slash Brainiac Breakroom. By the way, I've been wanting to make something off Facebook and I thought Reddit would be a good idea, but I've never really done Reddit and you have got to accrue Reddit karma before you can start your own subreddit. So, does anybody out there have a lot of Reddit karma and maybe wants to start the subreddit for me? Drop me an email, moxie at yourbrainonfacts.com. And I couldn't possibly put a dollar value on the folks that review the podcast and the book. Like a recent review from a username that starts with B-R-E-A, I can't pronounce it, but you know who you are, who said, love Moxie, she's very informative, and I love listening to her podcast. Thank you so much for that. And over on the book review side of things, I do appreciate the folks who have reviewed recently. We are trying to drive that one negative review as far out of sight as we can. Ruthie says, five stars, awesome for podcast fans and new readers alike. I can't pick a favorite part. And Julian writes, do you want to win the pizza on trivia night at the local pub? Read this. When I was a kid, I loved books of trivia like Ripley's Believe It or Not and the multiple volumes of the book of lists. This great collection of facts and trivia is meticulous in its detail and filled with humor, pictures, and an organized bibliography. There are corrections on misinformation, things that people believe that are in fact incorrect. A great book to have in the bathroom and to open to a random page. Thoughtful, funny, well put together, and endlessly entertaining. What better way to spend COVID isolation? Thank you so much, Julian. And yes, I am proud of the organized bibliography, and that thing took three whole days to put together by itself, and I was so glad to see the end of it. If you would like to hear your opinions read on the show, drop a review for the book on Amazon or Goodreads, and if you can't leave reviews on your podcast app, check out the website podchaser.com where you can leave reviews, on what is meant to be the IMDB of podcasts. You might be surprised by who gets a Nobel Prize, and by who doesn't. Like Russian chemist Dmitry Mendeleev, who was really into organization, specifically organizing the elements of our universe by their atomic weight into a little thing we call the periodic table, and in doing so, revealing patterns in their properties that allowed him to make astute deductions about the nature of matter, and was even able to predict the properties of as-yet-undiscovered elements. He didn't get a Nobel Prize for it, though. Then there are folks like Portuguese neurologist Antonio Egas Moniz, who received the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1949 for his development of the prefrontal lobotomy, a procedure that, at its best, involved blindly chopping through brain tissue with a sharp implement, such as, literally, an ice pick, to supposedly treat the mentally ill, the depressed, and people with learning disabilities. It was also widely applied to people with behavioral issues and women with, you know, opinions and things. Many of the patients were left in a permanent vegetative state, and the procedure is now not only not used it's considered unethical. At the time, Moniz claimed that those setbacks were a fair price to pay, the eggs you have to break for the omelette of a civilized society. Not everyone agreed with him, though, like the former patient who shot Moniz in 1939. A lot of lives were ruined as a direct result of his work, including Rosemary Kennedy, sister to President John F. Kennedy, whose father had her lobotomized for being incorrigible and sexually active. Danish scientist Johannes Feiberger won the 1926 Nobel Prize in Medicine for discovering a cancer-causing parasite, what the Nobel Committee called, quote, the greatest contribution to experimental medicine in our generation. Feiberger studied wild rats with warts that he believed to be a form of cancer caused by a parasitic worm. One tiny oversight, though, and by one, I mean several, and by tiny, I mean dramatic and critical. While it's true that some infections, like human papillomavirus, can lead to certain cancers, the rat's disease wasn't parasitic in origin. It wasn't even a cancer. It was a vitamin A deficiency. I'm sure the fact that Feiburger had friends on the Nobel Committee was just a coincidence. The most questionable inclusions come from the most arbitrary prize of all the nobel peace prize the most nebulous influenceable and detached from the reality the rest of us are living in prize nominations for the nobel peace prize are supposed to be for those who have not just dedicated themselves to a cause but made personal sacrifices for the greater good risking their reputations and even their lives to bring Fraternity between nations and peace to the world. How about one of the biggest names in nonviolent resistance in history, Mahatma Gandhi? He was nominated but didn't win five times 1937, 38, 39, 47, and just before he was assassinated in 1948. At the very least, the committee decided to make no award that year on the grounds that there were, quote, No suitable living candidate. More stunning than that obvious omission are the people who have been nominated, like Vladimir Putin. Yep, the poster child for modern-day invasions and spy killing was nominated by the International Academy of Spiritual Unity and Cooperation of Powers of the World. They need an acronym to recognize his efforts in using non-military action to get the Syrian government to surrender its chemical weapons after Putin had ordered the invasion of Ukraine. Marxist-Leninist socialist leader Fidel Castro got a Nobel Peace Prize nomination in 2001, courtesy of a Norwegian member of parliament, with the logic, and this is a quote, What do you prefer, the right to vote, or easy access to schools, healthcare, housing, and food, as is the case in Cuba? As a wise man once said, No, you're not wrong, Walter, you're just an ass." Phenomenal Disappearer of People, Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin, was nominated twice, in 1945 and 48. Apparently, it was for his efforts in ending World War II, but other people on the committee must have remembered little things like the siege of Berlin that killed 65,000 people, the execution of over 25,000 Polish POWs, orchestrating a political campaign later referred to as The Great Terror, to hit just a few of the highlights. In the same year that Italian fascist dictator Benito Mussolini was ordering the invasion of Ethiopia and placing three-quarters of Italian businesses under state control, he was nominated for the 1935 Nobel Peace Prize. He received not one letter of recommendation, but two. Though, curiously, those letters have gone missing from the Nobel Institute archives. Nothing suspicious there, I'm sure. Mussolini was not shortlisted. But the committee couldn't agree on a winner, so there was no prize that year either. Sono mortificato il Duce. So, we got Stalin and Mussolini. Can we get the hat trick? Yep, Adolf Hitler was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 1939. Swedish parliamentarian E.G.C. Brandt made the nomination, but claimed it was a sarcastic criticism of Swedish politics at the time, and a response to other members of parliament nominating British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, whose policies of appeasement, rather than preventing war with Germany, basically guaranteed it. Hitler wasn't a fan of the Nobel Prize, as it turns out, especially after the 1935 Peace Prize was given to a journalist and vocal critic of his. Hitler barred any German from accepting a Nobel Prize, and instead created the German National Prize for Art and Science. Three Germans won Nobel Prizes in 1938 and 39 for chemistry and medicine, but were forced to decline the awards. After the war, they were able to collect their certificates and medal, but not the prize money. Nobel Prize historian Asli Sveen told Reuters, It is always a risk when they promote somebody, and they cannot predict what is going to happen in the future. Otherwise, you would give the prize to very old people just before they die. Some people are overlooked, while others are given the award, but don't want it. It's rare, but it happens. French philosopher and writer Jean-Paul Sartre declined his Nobel Prize in Literature in 1964, but then it was his habit to decline any award. In 1973, communist Vietnamese leader Li Docto Thọ was jointly awarded the Peace Prize with U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger for their work negotiating the Paris Peace Accords during the Vietnam War. Kissinger accepted, but Tho refused because they hadn't actually achieved peace yet. In the days of cancel culture and bludgeoning each other with the question of can you separate the art from the artist without ever actually answering it, there are definitely some names in the winner's circle that would raise eyebrows and trend hashtags. Like William Shockley, co-inventor of the transistor, who won the Nobel Prize in physics in 1956, and was an unrepentant racist who later turned his attention to eugenics. Or Carrie Mullis, the 1993 winner for chemistry, who was a big fan of LSD, no shade thrown there, but also champions astrology and claims he had an encounter with aliens in the form of talking, glowing raccoons. That is not going to help his reputation, you might think, but it sounds more eccentric than it does harmful. He's also an AIDS denier who lent his Nobel laureate credibility to a molecular biologist who insists that the HIV virus is harmless and AIDS is actually caused by recreational drug use and anti-HIV pharmaceuticals. I'll give you a moment with that one. The 1918 Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to Fritz Haber, whose method of synthesizing ammonia from nitrogen and hydrogen for use as a fertilizer is actually a key factor in the hockey stick growth rate of human population because of this supernatural way of enhancing the soil. Arguably, Haber is responsible for the existence of two billion people because we're able to grow more food. He's also responsible for the excruciating deaths of thousands. Haber is the man who weaponized chlorine gas for use on World War I battlefields. Side note, did your grandma ever catch you pulling a silly face and tell you, if the wind shifts, your face will stick like that? That actually comes from World War I. Chlorine gas is heavier than air, and when the wind blew it into the trenches... The unfortunate souls there died with terribly contorted faces. The winner of the 2001 Nobel Prize in Medicine, Tim Hunt, told a luncheon of female journalists and scientists, Let me tell you my trouble with girls. Three things happen when they are in the lab. You fall in love with them, they fall in love with you, and when you criticize them, they cry. Hunt later claimed his remarks were, intended as a light-hearted ironic comment, end quote. Ah yes, Schrodinger's joke. wherein an a-hole says something he means, such as in an online post, and then claims it was a joke all along when he's taken to task for it. I, for one, ain't buying it, And neither did Pulitzer Prize-winning science writer Deborah Bloom, who wrote: "Statements like this are indicators of an ingrained attitude that yes, does make it harder for women to advance in the world of science. And then there's James Watson. You heard about him in episode 125, Been Caught Stealing, when he and two colleagues stole the work of Rosalind Franklin and won the Nobel Prize for discovering the helical structure of DNA. He never gave Franklin credit, but he was more than happy to criticize her appearance and clothing whenever the opportunity presented itself. One wonders about his understanding of genetics, though. During a lecture at Berkeley, he suggested there are biochemical links between sexual libido and skin color, saying, quote, "...that's why you have Latin lovers," and sometimes links between body weight and ambition. He declared in an interview that "...some antisemitism is justified." Kind of like beloved children's author Roald Dahl saying Hitler didn't hate the Jews for no reason. Proving that you can always dig the hole a little deeper, Hunt also declared that he was inherently gloomy about the prospect of Africa because all our social policies are based on the fact that their intelligence is the same as ours, whereas all the testing says it's not. When his feet were held to the fire over those statements, Watson threw a hissy fit and auctioned off his medal, and then, one assumes, rolled around naked in the $4.1 million it sold for. You don't have to be a card-carrying social justice warrior to see racism and sexism behind Nobel Prize snubs. Xenophobia and Eurocentricity, too. Shockingly, nominations for a Scandinavian award heavily favor Europe, especially Northern and Western Europe. While we don't know how 2020 is going to shake out, as of 2019, Nobel Prizes have been awarded to a total of 866 men, 53 women, and 24 organizations. Let me do some quick math. Individual women have won less than 6% of Nobel Prizes. Among female laureates, it breaks down to 17 Peace Prizes, 16 for literature, no surprise that those are the two biggest categories, 12 for medicine, 7 for chemistry, 4 for physics, and 2 in the quasi-Nobel Prize for economics. One of the best-known alleged gender-based snubs is the case of Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who discovered pulsars in 1967. She published a paper with her advisor, Anthony Hewish, and Hewish and another male colleague were given the Nobel Prize for it in 1974. Her name was literally on the paper the award was being given for. This is why a lot of women, including sliding into infamy J.K. Rowling, use initials instead of first names. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Part of the Area of Media Network, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, zen, my friends. Bye bye. I'll be seeing you. Austrian-Swedish physicist Lise Meitner discovered nuclear fission of uranium, but the committee awarded the prize to her longtime collaborator Otto Hahn alone. At least she got some recognition in 1982, when a newly discovered element was named in her honor, Mike Miriam. One possible silver lining to our current situation is that it's provided some people with the opportunity to start podcasts they've always wanted to start. And I've got three tools I want to recommend to the new baby podcasters to really help them out. The first being, coincidentally, the sponsor of today's episode, Podcorn. Podcorn has repeatedly helped me find sponsors for the show. It's a marketplace that connects podcasters to sponsors for host-read ads, interviews, topical discussions. You can do as much or as little sponsorship as you want, and you have complete control over the entire process, who you accept ads from and how much you charge for it. Plus, there are no upfront fees. Podcorn makes it easy to look for potential sponsors and submit proposals to them, and if there's a deal to be struck, Podcorn makes it fast and easy to get paid, too. Oh, speaking of money, there are no upfront costs. I highly recommend anyone who needs to monetize a podcast, check out Podcorn. There's a link to it in the show notes today. Or simply go to Podcorn.com. It's like popcorn, but for podcasts, so it's Podcorn podcorn.com. Of course, before you get sponsors, you need to get your show up. And for that, you need a hosting company. If you're not sure what that is, that just means you definitely need a hosting company. And I have been with Libsyn, which is short for Liberated Syndication, from the beginning, and I could not be happier. The tech is great, it's easy to use, and if you do run into a problem, their support is so knowledgeable and so fast, Look at get you straightened out in no time. And Libsyn is helping me help new podcasters by giving them more than a month of hosting for free. So if you sign up with Libsyn, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot and use the promo code MOXIE, M-O-X-I-E, you will get the remainder of the current month for free and then all of next month for free too. libsyn.com, promo code Moxie. Moxie is also the promo code you need for Pigeon. What in the world, Moxie, is Pigeon? Pigeon is a Gmail based CRM, which stands for Customer Relationship Manager but really what it means is keeping your contacts and your conversations for a particular project straight. It was absolutely essential to me when I was trying to get myself booked on 50 other podcasts to promote the launch of the book. Once you've started using Pigeon, you are going to wonder what you ever did without it. And Pigeon is also giving you a discount just for dropping my name. It's one of the few times in my life where name dropping me will actually benefit you. Use the promo code MOXIE to save 10% off just the handy-dandiest CRM out there at trypigeon.co. You can't talk about women and the Nobel Prize without immediately thinking of Marie Curie, the first woman to win a Nobel Prize and the only woman to have won more than one. She was, in fact, the first person to win a second Nobel Prize. She won in physics in 1903 with her husband Pierre, and then in 1911 in chemistry. Science and the Nobel Prize were a family business for the Curies. Marie's daughter, Irene, won the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1935, making them the only mother daughter duo to have won Nobel Prizes. We hold Marie Curie in high esteem these days, as well we should. But you hardly need me to tell you that that wasn't the case in her lifetime. You don't need me to, but I'm going to anyway. Even as Curie's reputation as a capable, brilliant scientist grew, so did the scrutiny of her private life, resulting in what you might call a sex scandal. Four years after Pierre died in a carriage accident, the 43-year-old Marie became involved with one of her former students, physicist Paul Langevin, her still married former student, Paul Langevin. The two had a secret apartment in Paris together, and Langevin's wife hired a man to break into it and steal evidence of their affair in the form of incriminating letters that were leaked to the press. French newspapers went gaga for the story. They painted Polish born Curie as a home wrecker who had started the affair while her husband was still alive and that she was a Jewish seductress, even though she wasn't Jewish. The public was outraged, and not in our modern make-two-tweets-and-a-Facebook-post kind of outrage. Curie returned home from a conference one night to find an angry mob around her house harassing her two daughters, causing them to have to flee to a friend's house. Not wanting to see his lover get dragged in the papers, Langevin challenged one reporter who had called him a boor and a coward, to a duel. Elaborate preparations were made, but when the fateful moment arrived, the reporter refused to shoot so as not to take out one of France's greatest minds. Cough, Langevin never won a Nobel Prize. Cough. And Langevin declared that he wasn't a killer and put his gun down too. The story was such big business for the papers that it sparked a second duel, this time between two newspaper editors, over the veracity of the jilted wife's accusations. The two fought with swords, and after several fierce bouts, one man was injured, but they shook hands and made up. Albert Einstein tried to help, I guess, maybe, if you tilt it to the side and squint. He said Curie has a sparkling intelligence, but despite her passionate nature, She is not attractive enough to represent a threat to anyone. Tell you what, Al, don't do me no favors, okay? It was at the height of the whole kerfuffle that Curie won her second Nobel in 1911. The committee gave credit where credit was due, but they were adamant that Curie should sit out the ceremony. But they didn't actually bar Curie from attending. Said biochemist Olaf Hammerstein, If she comes and this matter surfaces, that would create difficulties at the ceremony, in particular at the banquet. The banquet was held with the royal family of Sweden in attendance. Another Nobel laureate wrote to Marie directly, saying, "'I beg you to stay in France. No one can calculate what might happen here. I hope, therefore, that you will telegraph that you do not wish to accept the prize,' Before the Longavan trial shows the accusations about you are absolutely without foundation, referring to a court hearing for Langevin and his wife, scheduled for just after the Nobel ceremony. Einstein, actually helping this time, wrote to Curie and encouraged her to go. If the rabble continues to be occupied with you, simply stop reading that drivel. Leave it to the vipers it was fabricated for. Curie went... She'd won an unprecedented second Nobel Prize, and she was damned if she was going to let anyone take that from her. The ceremony and banquet passed without incident, and the newspapers eventually got bored and moved on. Science had been Curie's life, and her death. Prolonged exposure to radioactive material exacts a high cost we know now. To this day, Marie Curie's notebooks are still too radioactive to handle. While today's episode is just a sampling of the stories from the history of the Nobel Prize, see also the 2018 Prize for Literature being suspended when the winner was convicted of sexual assault and even accused of groping the Swedish princess, there's one story that stands out from the pack. In April 1940, the Nazis invaded Denmark. Scientists working at the famous physicist Neil Bohr's laboratory in Copenhagen had in their possession the Nobel Prize medals for physics belonging to Max von Loh and James Frank, which had been smuggled out of Germany for safekeeping. The Nazi party had forbidden any gold to be taken out of the country. Taking over the world is expensive. But they suspected the medals had been spirited away, but they would need to find them to have evidence of the crime. This is where Hungarian chemist George de Hevesy comes in. He first thought to bury the metals, classic, but that idea got voted down as too obvious. His next idea went way in the other direction. Dissolve the metals and recover the gold when it was safe. As mental as it sounds to protect something by destroying it, Hevesy's contemporaries liked the idea. Just one problem, though, Gold is extremely unreactive – it doesn't want to dissolve in anything. With one notable exception – aqua regia. Aqua regia is a blend of hydrochloric acid and nitric acid. Individually, neither of the acids can dissolve gold. But with their powers combined, they can. The nitric acid oxidizes a tiny amount of gold to form gold ions and the hydrochloric acid provides chlorine ions that react with the gold ions. This removes gold ions from the solution, allowing the nitric acid to oxidize a little more. Lather, rinse, repeat, and voila, an orange solution of chloroauric acid. Not so fast, though. No, I mean, it's not so fast. While we don't know for certain how long the process took We do know that it was a slow process to dissolve even a gram of gold, let alone the 200 grams de Hevesy had to do. But he did it, and the solution that used to be two Nobel Prizes could be hidden in plain sight with all the other lab chemicals. And it worked. The Nazis combed the lab from stem to stern, searching for the metals. But thanks to de Hevesy's absolutely mad idea, they didn't find even a trace. Many years later, a reagent was added to the chloroauric acid, and elemental gold began to precipitate out. This was sent to the Nobel Committee, who recast the metals. De Hevesy received a Nobel Prize of his own, though not for this splendid caper, but for his work with isotopes. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Robert Wilson walked across the street at 2 a.m. to tell fellow Stanford University colleague Paul Milgram that they won the 2020 Nobel Prize for Economics for their work on auctions that benefit buyers and sellers around the globe. The committee had been trying to reach Milgram for hours, but he had his phone on silent, as we all sometimes do, prompting his neighbor to go outside and deliver the news in person. Says Milgram, I was asleep and the doorbell rang at two in the morning, and then I picked up the phone, it's a video doorbell, and I saw Bob's face and he was knocking at the door, telling me they were trying to call me and that we had won a Nobel Prize, which is pretty, pretty good news. Remember, you can always find the research sources and the script for the episode at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe.